Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to TV Show and Tell, the podcast that brings the world of television to life through the medium of sound. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, internationally known as The Format Doctor. And in today's show, we'll be hearing from US producer Aaron Solomon about his work on American game shows. We'll also be brushing up our CVs to see if we could work for the BBC. And there's a couple of interesting internet stories to catch up on later. But first, let's see if Justin's got any news fresh from his travels to Canada. Um, well, this is not a Canadian show, but um, <laughs> the first one I picked up on is called Dancing With Myself, which is launching on NBC. This is a show that picks up on the phenomenon driven by TikTok, I suppose, but also lockdown. So there are three stars, in this case, pop icons Shakira and Nick Jonas of Jonas Brothers and YouTube star Lisa Koshi. And they perform a dance routine in the studio and they're watched by contestants who are each in their own isolated pod. The contestants have to learn the routine they've just seen, then recreate it, but add their own spin to it. And the audience judge the dancer they think is best. Right. Okay. This basically came about from the phenomenon of people joining parties on Zoom um, that were hosted by DJs, but obviously dancing alone at home. And also Shakira posted a video called Girl Like Me, which got a huge amount of traction on TikTok. And people actually not only copying her dance, but actually dressing up, wearing the same clothes that she was and things like that. Mm. So they were trying to mirror the dance. And that was what inspired this format. When you scroll through Facebook and it puts up those sort of little short mm. videos, there's so many of these sort of like 10 second thing of <laughs> some, some girl dancing in the bedroom. And you sort of think like, well, what, like, first of all, who's watching these? And like, why are they, why are they monetizable? It's sort of very, I find them very strange. We've gone from dance like nobody's watching to dance like everybody's watching. Yeah. I think as a phenomenon, but, uh, thing I find slightly strange about it is that, I mean, firstly, it does feel like a lockdown show. Um, so in that sense, it already feels a bit dated. And also the fundamental point of a broadcast primetime show is that it's about people being together in some form or another. So having people in the studio, but apart, I don't know, it all feels a bit of a mess, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe it'll be a hit or maybe all the viral stuff that comes off it, uh, will be the thing that holds it together. So finally, I have joined the rest of the universe and got around to watching Squid Game and the actual drama series. All right. So you say that there is now a Squid Game actual TV show coming out. Yes, we've mentioned this before, actually, that there was various people scrambling to come up with Squid Game, the reality show. So this is Squid Game, which is the brutal, devastating indictment of capitalist greed and economic exploitation. And now Netflix have announced without a breath of irony that it's casting for the said game show with a whopping prize of $4.56 million. And of course, no fatal eliminations, hopefully. Well, there's a few things to unpack there. I mean, yeah. first of all, Mr. Beast has already done this. Absolutely, yeah. TV, again, being a bit slow to react to things. 
Uh, presumably this is being commissioned while they wait for the second series of the actual drama, because mm. that's not going to probably come around until 2024. Mm. Pity the poor contestant researchers are going to have to look for 456 contestants. <laughs> yes. And talk about like no fatal eliminations. We were actually chatting on Twitter the other day about TV shows where they kind of pretend that the contestants do die. And there's surprisingly many of them. Mm. Uh, can you think of any off the top of your head? <sighs> yeah. What was that show? What was that show that we always called Bin Men in Space? Scavengers. Scavengers, yes. Yeah, so they pretended that people were eliminated by a, a somebody on board who was wiping out people on this spaceship. Yeah, they're getting shot at, and then potentially they could be left alone to die if they didn't get onto the ship in time. Yep, that's one of them. Mm-hmm. To be honest, at the development stage, I've, I've hit this so many times where people have told me, and then they get killed. And I go, no, they don't. No, they don't. Like I said, there's quite a few of them. There was a Murder in Small Town X, or the murder game, mm-hmm. uh, which we called here. There's the kid show Nightmare. Again, they do bring them back later. There was a State of Panic, Release the Hounds, Killer Camp, MTV's The Phone, which was mm-hmm. exec produced by Justin Timberlake, um, Who Done It, and um, a couple of others as well. So, yeah, it, it's a it's a strange uh, plot device, and sometimes they do kind of fess up that it's not real, and sometimes they weirdly don't, and then it sort of leave, leaves them in a kind of weird limbo with the viewers where they sort of go, what actually happened there? I think what you have to do is, I mean, I, I think it can work as long as you juxtapose it with a proper elimination from the show. Um, as a As a sort of rhetorical device, I think it's fine. It's where it doesn't work is where it's used as the reason why people are no longer on the show, as opposed to a strong technical device within the game engine. And then, you know, then it doesn't work. I think the key thing to remember is the jeopardy is you failing and losing. Yeah. The jeopardy is not you losing your life because clearly that hasn't happened. and Therefore, it's not a jeopardy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So that's the point. As long as there is real jeopardy and the jeopardy is not only real within the game, but real within winning the prize or not winning the prize or whatever, then it sort of works. But even then, I think you have to have a very light touch with it on television. I wanted to big up a YouTube show that I've been watching called Jet Lag. This has been put out by Wendover Productions, uh-huh. which is a channel which does sort of short, interesting, did you know type fact videos. And they've sort of spun off a, a short three episode series of a game show effectively called Jet Lag. So what happens is that there's two teams of two from the channel okay. and they have to travel around the mainly western part of the American map, divided up into states. And then if they can go to the state capitol building and do a task in that state, then they claim it, and they kind of have to play, like, connect four. Right. So if you can if you can claim four states in a horizontal or vertical line, you win the game. Yeah. And it's it's rather good, actually. I do feel a bit icky about shows where there's a large amount of travel in, involved in the area when we're trying to re- you know reduce our carbon footprint and things like that. They try and get around that by saying we are 10 times offsetting all of our emissions, which I think takes some of the curse off it, but it doesn't completely absolve them, I think. Uh, but this is the nearest thing that I've seen to a TV quality show in quite some time. I think it's worth checking out. So uh, do search for Jet Lag, the game show, on YouTube. For UK listeners, if you want to see people desperately racing around to get on a plane, just go to any local airport around now, and you'll, you'll, that's what you'll see. <laughs>
Now it's time for our interview with US game show producer Aaron Solomon. Aaron's previously been on TV Show and Tell as part of our Weakest Link special. Well, while we had him, we talked about some of the other shows in his extensive career. If you're interested in the real nuts and bolts about the hidden magic that's often required to make formats work, this is really worth a listen. Our special guest today is a board game inventor, musician, but mainly a freelance co-executive producer who's worked on many top shows, including Whammy, Identity, One vs. 100, The $100,000 Pyramid, The Weakest Link, as well as a quiz show set on top of a skyscraper. However, I can confirm he's safely on terra firma for the duration of this interview. It's Aaron Solomon. Hi, Aaron. Hey, David. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining with us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Just ask you some general question of like of all the shows that you've worked on, which one would you have liked to have been a contestant on? Because you're kind of like a, a games and puzzles and trivia guy generally. So what would you like to have been on? It's funny. I think about that question from time to time. That sort of the worst thing about working in game shows is that I can no longer be a contestant on them. But I would probably say the $100,000 pyramid. I think that the something about the word communication aspect of it and just having worked for a few years, the new reboot with Michael Strahan that we have here in the US. Um, and also I did a previous version as well with that was hosted by Donny Osmond. Um, I really feel like I spent so much time learning how to coach people to be good clue givers and receivers that I would have <laughs> loved to have actually sat in the winner circle myself and, and seen if I could do the same under pressure. So you've worked on so many great shows. One I think that is worth doing an interesting deep dive on was the Joker's Wild, which was a show that was, was it mainly the 70s originally in the States? It started in the 1970s and bled over into the 80s, hosted by Jack Barry. Mm. And historically, um, you know, this was known as Jack's return to television after the infamous game show scandals mm. with 21 that the movie quiz show was based on of course it's funny because when the show was being developed to be pitched and we really looked at some of the old episodes uh, it's not a terribly compelling format if you hold it next to some of the more modern formats it's I think at the time, someone must have said, oh, it's, let's do a slot machine and let's put categories on it and that'll be enough. And then the questions were all very sort of dry and straightforward. And, and even the scoring mechanism was a little broken because someone could randomly win the game on one question. And there were all kinds of format issues with, you know, what happens if on the first spin somebody wins the game and now they go on to the bonus round and we're one minute into the show. <laughs> So those were a lot of things we wanted to look into when we were redeveloping it. Um, I had the, the privilege of helping develop it on the front end. And then I actually was able to work as a co-executive producer on season two. In our case, the, the biggest change, at least public facing, was that the host was Snoop Dogg, who had fond memories of watching this particular show with his grandmother. And so he had sort of sentimental reasons for wanting to to bring this back. And what, who, who approached who? Did he come up with the idea of, I want to bring this back? Or was he approached by the, the format right holders? Or So the show, the Joker's Wild reboot was produced in part by Smack Entertainment, which is Michael Strahan's company. And we had had Snoop as a contestant on the $100,000 Pyramid a couple of times. And I believe that in fact, Snoop's managers at one point, Snoop was repped by the Michael Strahan's business partner. So there was already sort of a relationship there. 
And Snoop has made no secret of the fact that, you know, he's been on The Price is Right and Family Feud and, you know, several things. And he just always talks about the fact that he loves game shows Hmm. and he's better at it than you would expect a gangster rapper to be necessarily. (laughs) It's, It's not really, you know, what you think of as being on brand for him. But I, I guess at some point in these conversations, he said, you know, I'd really like to host one of these. And, and the one I'd love to do is this one I used to watch with my grandma, Joker's Wild. Right. Once we knew we had Snoop as the host, uh, the question was not just, you know, how do we make this suitable for him? But like, how can we take advantage of who Snoop is to bring a whole new level of fun and entertainment to this? And what we realized is that there was an opportunity to turn this into a sort of comedy variety show. And especially when the network TBS was the one that ended up buying it, their whole thing, they had a whole campaign called very funny at one point, that was their, their catchphrase. So they were really fixated on the comedy of this even more so than the game. So Mm. that led to the idea of, well, what if each of the categories that you spin triggers like a little vignette of some kind. And so the sort of classic one would be uh, a category was called Ask Snooper, and they would push out this talking bong <laughs> that was sort of like an Alexa, except it was Snoop had pre-recorded himself in, in a digital voice, and he would have this little comical exchange. And the idea is that this bong was asking a question that the contestants then had to answer. And, and so when we started stumbling on that, we're like, okay, there's a real chance for this whole thing to seem really fun and playful and, and non-traditional. And I think it, in many ways, it elevated it to a more entertaining show than the original was. So you've got these sort of special set pieces of pieces of videotape or props that you bring in, special guests, etc. But then you've got this problem of the slot machine, it's random. So like, how do you make sure that the, all this fabulous material that you've got prepared and pre-recorded actually makes it to screen? Because the machine might not cooperate or the contestants might not pick the right categories. Or- no, it's a great question. And it's one that we looked at early on. So the format that we had, the idea is that there could be a total of eight spins. And so we looked at it and said, well, you know, if we just sort of let it lie as is, and we have five categories, that means we're going to have to write 40 questions, eight times five, because for all we know, they're going to pick the same category every single time. And we have to be ready for, you know, with, with content for that, plus backup questions, if anything were to happen. And once we started realizing that we were going to be doing all these fancy things with props, and we also had pre-tapes with people like Matthew McConaughey reading questions and that sort of thing. We knew we weren't going to be able to, you know, have him do eight questions. It's you know already too much of an ask. What we came up with is a system um, that's in the rules that says if a category plays twice within a round, um, it comes off the reels. It's been in the mix. We've seen it a couple times. But as a viewer, I would think that once you've seen it a couple times, like you're kind of like, okay, great. I'd like to see something else anyway. So it enabled us to only have to write each of the categories, two questions deep, I think, plus a third backup question. And then it also increased the likelihood of seeing things like Ask Snooper or, you know, Dazed, or was it Glazed and Confused with Matthew McConaughey? It was something donut themed, I think we had. And we had some other thing as well, like whenever we had a like an a-list celebrity that we wanted to hopefully see we would put those slides twice as frequently on the reels so we couldn't guarantee it nor would we want to because you want a certain amount of randomness with a slot machine but 
just from an odd standpoint, it was highly likely that at some point in the round, somebody would spin at least one of those. So we get a chance to take advantage of it. So this is all above board. Although it's random, contestants know what's happening. It's all in the rules. And you're just basically stacking the deck to give yourself the best possibility, even though you can't guarantee certain things happening. Uh, Standards and practice is very important to me and certainly important in game shows is that once you make the rules, you've got to heed to them and there can't be any funny business there. But if you want to, you can sort of modify what the rules are and disclose those. And as long as it's part of the contestant briefing and it's in the official game rules that they read and they sign in advance and everybody understands sort of the purpose for that and that we're not doing it to advantage or disadvantage a contestant, it's all for the most entertainment value that, that we can get out of the show, then, then everything's cool. How did you get away with all the drug references? <laughs> the short answer is that we were on cable TV. It's interesting that you zeroed in on this particular show because under the hood of this, there was a lot of odds-based mathematics and probability that went into sort of that perfect balance of something that was creatively satisfying, but also wasn't like incredibly cost prohibitive and, and time prohibitive to generate all the material. So I did this uh, seminar over Zoom with Bowen Karens, who is one of the, if not the preeminent statistician in the game show business today in our country anyway. And he's often called when they say, hi, we've got a million dollar show, but you know, we actually really want to only give away about $80,000 per episode on average. What do our numbers need to be on our money chain or what do the you know things on the wheels need to look like? So he was brought in to consult to figure out what the numbers were going to be. And he said his proudest moment was when he said, well, I feel like one of the reels should be 420. Is that reference? Uh, yeah, yeah. That travels across the pond. Re- yeah. Yeah. Reference the cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. So he was actually the one that says, you know, you could actually put in a 420 thing. And they were like, this is genius. And, you know, so of course Snoop was, was all over that. And, you know, this is a guy who's worked on major network primetime successful shows, but I think his proudest moment in his career is that he was able to put $420 on the reel of the Joker's Wild game. (laughs) Excellent. Now, one job application that came to my attention recently was for the BBC's Head of Commissioning of BBC Entertainment. The BBC is at an interesting juncture at the minute, having to lead its way into the world of digital, and its licence fee by no means guaranteed. So, let's have a look at what me and Justin would think if we were heading for this job. So, I think the first thing, Justin, I would say is that we need to sort of slightly unpack the difference between attack and defense. (laughs) (laughs) So attack is all about the fun stuff of like, okay, there's loads of new shows we can go out and try and commission. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing for me about BBC Entertainment is, is the defense side of things. Because there's so many legacy brands that they have that, that are perhaps showing their age or, and we have to remember that a commissioner's job is like half to keep these legacy brands going or deciding when to pull the plug and and say, Mm. well, we're going to make a slot for something different. So Mm. there's so many shows that have been going 10 years plus, like Strictly Condensing, Apprentice, Top Gear, Dragon's Den, starting to 
show its age perhaps and then you've got um again long-running shows like mastermind have i got news for you so you keep strictly come dancing going mm. or do you say well you know, maybe we should try and find the next strictly come dancing and then if you are going to commission new stuff what sort of things do you think the bbc should be commissioning right now mm. No, it's a good it's a good question and it's a good uh, analogy as well with defense and attack i think i mean in terms of legacy things i think i've always felt that having casualty on a saturday night in the middle of prime time has always been very odd to me and has actually been a bit of an obstacle to building saturday night as an entertainment night I don't understand it. I'm sure there's loads of casualty fans that, that love it. But given that Holby City's now gone, one thing I would do is I would move casualty to the Holby slot and open up prime time on a Saturday night. Because it, it, what it does is it forces the BBC to put all their entertainment shows earlier um, and doesn't give them a run into the evening. So that's certainly a legacy thing that I would do something with. I think also you've got to look at you know what has been tried because the BBC have tried a number of shows. I made a, a short list of things over the last five years, and this is just a smattering of them: Bank Balance, Pitch Battle, Little Mix, The Search, All Together Now, The Something Great Cooking Showdown, and of course the disastrous return and demise of the Generation Game. Mm-hmm. And if you think about those, they all have a slightly I don't know what the word is. They have a slightly softer edge than the alternatives on ITV and Sky and mm. so on. It's as if the BBC is always pulling back into its public service remit. I think after the fight over the voice and the loss of the voice to ITV, I've, I've felt that since then there's been this fear that anything that feels too commercial is somehow immediately under attack, which may well be immediately under attack. So there's always a sense that the purpose behind these things is to have a jolly good time and show that, you know, British people are smart or clever or nice or whatever. And the competitive edge isn't really there and that's all very well and you know maybe we have too much competition in our world but the fact is that the clean clear concept of competing for a big prize or a big contract or something like that as opposed to you know Gary Barlow's approval um, Mm -hmm. you know isn't sufficiently strong to hold you know a big entertainment slot. But yet they have been using more commercial presenters in terms of they bring you people like Paddy McGuinness across and Holly Willoughby and Bradley Walsh. And... Yes, but there's no, there's no, you're right, but there's no point bringing those people across if what they're then doing is saying, you know, well done, we've all had a lovely time. But do you think the, the reason why they're doing perhaps softer, cuddlier versions mm. of ideas is because of the age of the audience? I mean, like the age of a BBC One audience is well into the 60s and it's getting older by the year and is it is it about not scaring the horses well the average age i think of an itv viewer is 62 right Um, so they're not far behind to be honest with you i think itv have had more success with itv2 than bbc3 in some in in terms of those demographics Mm. but uh it's still you know the audience is still in their in their 60s on average um i think itv are possibly better again bringing in that family audience bring that sort of multi co-viewing thing that yes strictly does but i think things like have i got news for you 
a lot of these panel games that, again, the BBC are very, very good at, but they are remarkably slow at renewing them. Um, I have to say, I watch Have I Got News For You, and I just think, you know, I'm watching two people phone in their performances. Um, and, you know, why not? They're getting paid a great deal of money and so on. You know, good for them. But surely by now, you know, it, they could have found a permanent presenter and two new captains, you know, over time. It does feel like a an old show talking to an old audience, even even when it sometimes gets very good ratings. And I get that, but... It doesn't help the overall feeling that the BBC needs to refresh and renew itself. I think the two things I would do is for for slots where you, you can't do anything too edgy, I, I like the the approach that they did when they commissioned things like Friends Like These, mm. the um, which was a, a show that was largely with, say, people in their 20s, 30s, uh, playing for a holiday, team of boys, team of girls. That's with Ian Wright, um, yeah. Yeah, that was originally with Anton Deck and then with Ian Wright. Oh. That's right, yes. And I think I heard somebody explain it to me was by saying, the older people are going to like watching game shows anyway. So why don't we pitch the contestants to be younger mm. so that the younger people will also watch? Mm. And therefore you're broadening the audience. And I thought that was that was a smart thing to do. I do think that... You know, when you see sort of things like Race Around the World, they, the casting on there, naturally, it always kind of be like, okay, there's a couple of university students, but there's also the middle-aged couple and, the, and a couple of retired yeah. people. And like, it's like they're trying to play to all crowds at all times. And I think maybe some more slightly targeted things that target a bit more to the younger people that aren't necessarily BBC3 audience would be a good thing to do. And the other thing is... I would use BBC Two as a more experimental channel yeah, and, I, and take many more risks. Well, it always was. And that's the thing. You know, so many of the legacy shows that are standing now there solidly in prime time, you know, started on BBC Two. And that's something that's, that's been really lost. I think that goes back to the Yentob years, actually, as I remember, which was this uh, very much repositioning BBC Two, which up until that point was almost like classic FM. Um, you know, in its in its bland middle-agedness. Um, and it was definitely repositioned as a proving ground for shows. Um, and so many shows that then, well, not so many, there were a lot of them, but the ones that moved from there to BBC One, you know, proved their, their worth on BBC Two. For a short time, BBC Four was somewhat of a proving ground for BBC Two because QI had a presence there and then Only Connect. Connect yeah wobbled between the commissioning departments of BBC4 and BBC2 before it eventually went on BBC4, and then after eight, nine series, it went to BBC2. Mm. To be fair, they have actually announced recently that they're going to put up a fund for more comedy pilots now, right. and, and so let's see how that, that goes ahead. But um, There's something that I, if I was if I was the head of entertainment, I'd like to commission, which was a, uh, a show I saw on Swiss television about 10 years ago, uh, when they had a very, very cool head of arts at the time. And he did a lot of experimental things. And they did a live production of The Magic Flute, okay, which you might say is very BBC2, possibly BBC4. But what they did was, on the main channel, they had the live production. And on the second channel, they had live behind the scenes. <laughs> they had cameras all over the opera house and you could just flick between the channels 
um, and go go and be up in the up in the uh, you know where the scenery dropped down. You could be in the dressing rooms. You could be all over the place. And I particularly remember a, a great scene where it was just before the Queen of the Night uh, comes on. And she comes on with a very high note as her first entry. And if you flicked onto the other channel, she was being rushed down this concrete, you know, (laughs) corridor to get to her, to get to her queue. And she was going like, I can't do it. I can't do it. My my voice is gone. Take me home. Take me home. (laughs) She was absolutely losing it. Uh, And then. You're right on cue. She came through the wings and just hit this big note on on the other channel, and it was absolutely glorious. And it just picked up two completely different audiences. And you can imagine doing that with a, you know, even with a musical or something. It was such a brilliant idea. Um, mm. I was just also just such a great use of channels. It was a creative use of channels, mm. and I'd love to see something like that. So that would be one of my first jobs, my first commissions. All right. Well, it sounds like your your CV is virtually halfway out the door as it is. So, BBC, if you've got a bundle of money to shove Justin's way, you know where to find him. <laughs> now we return to US producer Aaron Solomon, who reveals more of the background workings on another couple of shows he's worked on. I wanted to uh, jump across to one of your other shows, Show Me the Money, Oof. Um, which was done in the shadows of, of the sort of deal or no deal era. And so rather than picking suitcases, the players picked dancers that were holding scrolls. <laughs> Take us through how that show is different and what, what the problem was in terms of writing for it. So the history of that was its creator was actually the same man who created Deal or No Deal. It was Dick de Rijk, who's from the Netherlands, who I've had a, the pleasure to, to get to know over the years. And he's a great guy. And it was, as you might imagine, product of networks saying, wow, this other show was a hit on another network. We want our version of that. So it sort of started with, okay, how can we do something that involves picking people, but it's not models and it's not whatever. So the decision was made of it's not models, it's dancers. And in fact, the show was originally bought by the Fox network. So they had thought that it was going to be a very risque hip hop kind of a thing and have a really different vibe. So all of the dancers that they hired were you know really hip-hop trained people and at some point in development when fox realized how much money we potentially could give away they panicked and dropped the show and so for about 48 hours uh, there was this whole staff of of people that were in pre-production we didn't know what was going on unbeknownst to us endemol turned around and sold it to abc but because abc had dancing with the stars they wanted a more elegant take on the dancing. So they wanted them to be doing salsa dancing and, you know, bossa nova, which was not what these dancers were trained in. So they sort of had to get this crash course in, in like ballroom style dancing, you know, and there just wasn't time to recast people who were experts in that. So right from the beginning, you could tell that things were a little bit chaotic. So now when it comes to the questions, this was probably the most material inefficient show I've ever worked on in my life because you had to get either six correct answers or six wrong answers. Either one of those would end your game. But because there was such a great fluctuation in dollar amounts, I think the smallest amount was maybe 10 or 20,000 and the largest was 
something like a quarter million. Um, we wanted to have some kind of control over the level of difficulty of each question as you, you know, proceeded up the chain. So we somehow had determined in our testing that we needed five levels of difficulty of questions. And the level of difficulty of question was triggered by where you were at the time in terms of what your bank was and what potentially stood to gain on that question based on the remaining values that were up on the board. So you would get a much easier question if you were starting out at zero and you know, or had $20,000 as opposed to you've already got $250,000 and you could potentially add another 200 to it. So that meant writing five times as many groupings of questions as we would ever possibly use. And then if you recall the format, the sort of creative conceit was we would start out with a phrase like what singer dot, 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 and then you could choose A, B, or C and you would see it. It would be like, what singer, you know, fronted the band, whatever, whatever the question was, or it could be, you know, what singer company device do seamstresses use to, you know, that sort of a thing. It was our job to kind of come up with a few different ways that that intro phrase could get spun off. So that meant that we now had to write three times as many questions for each of those groupings. So we had to write something like 115 questions of which a maximum of 11 would actually get played. I think it's the only show I've worked on to date where I, I actually slept under my desk one night because that was easier than just going home and, you know, but hey, if like an app or board game came out, you got the questions already done. So. <laughs> That's right. Somewhere. Yeah, God only knows where those are. We should try to repurpose them somehow. I'd wanted to ask you about Mental Samurai because that was a, a fascinating show just purely because of the bit of kit you're working with. So th- this was a, an arm that has like basically a chair that the contestants sit in. Yes. And I heard a rumor that that, that was worth $7 million. Is that, is that right? You know, I'm not sure about the total cost of it, but I, I do know that there, to my knowledge, is only one in the world. And after season one was filmed here in the U.S., there was a version that was shot in Spain, in Madrid. So the arm was shipped from the U.S. to Spain. And then when season two was greenlit in the U.S., it was determined that the cost of bringing it back and shooting in the U.S. would be greater than if we just traveled the show to Spain and shot it on their set, which was already built and identical to the U.S. version. So in fact, season two was filmed in Madrid and all the contestants were flown from the U.S. So you know, for all appearances, you would never know that it was shot anywhere else. Sometimes I would have thought that the the ability to sort of throw people around and turn them upside down and things like that didn't necessarily uh, get used in the questions. Because I thought you, what you could do is sort of say, well, like 16 plus 9 equals. But if you sort of look, turn that upside down, it would look like completely different numbers. Was it, was it just purely because it was already enough of a mental onslaught and a physical onslaught that you thought that might be too much. <laughs> so I I worked on season two of that show. I did not work on the first season, but I had several colleagues who did. And, and they told me stories of when they were beta testing the game, they would be in an office and they would literally have like a production assistant push someone around in a swivel chair and try to disorient them, which, you know, <laughs> there's only so much of that you can really do safely and, and not risk anybody's well-being. And once they actually got into the studio and started doing these 360 turns and then people were under the lights competing for real money, they found that people were way more freaked out and disoriented than they expected they would be. 
And so for the first couple of days of taping, people were just crashing and burning on the material because they were just in no shape to answer any question. So I heard these stories of like, <laughs> just writers having to sort of frantically let, write the easiest questions they possibly could, like, you know, rank these colors of a traffic light in order in which they appear, just so that you'd get some amount of success. And I, I know that the the morale early on was not great because... The feeling was, oh my God, did we create a show that's just like, it's the worst of all worlds because contestants are, are being put through hell. And then the questions that are being asked are so easy to the home viewers that they're not experiencing that same you know thing. So it's like not even challenging to watch. So fortunately, the style of the questions and the fact that they were different from your standard sort of quiz they were rank these things in order or listening to these sounds and what's the only one you didn't hear or put this puzzle together and what's the missing piece those kind of shows had not really been on the air in quite some time and so i think people really sparked to the variety of the ways in which the intellect was challenged and it didn't really matter to them that the vast majority of them are, are like immediately easy to answer but the fact that you're pivoting your brain from like a memory challenge to a puzzle challenge was enough to sort of engage you. So with You Deserve It, that was a, a an interesting experiment of a hybrid because it was trying to bring a kind of feel-good prize-surprise show and marry it with a big-money quiz show. How do you feel that process went? I mean, do you, do you think that it was possible to, to bring those two things together? You Deserve It was this very cool premise where the contestant who's in studio is playing to win money, not for themselves, but for someone who is close to them, who is going through a very difficult time uh, in their life and really needs a large sum of money to, to help them out of their tight spot. And the game that's being played is this unique clue-based format where you have to figure out a where, a what, or a who uh, based on a series of 10 clues. But the more clues you need the more money is being deducted from the total that you could stand to win. So it was this really great hybrid of cool gameplay and done for a good cause. When we were in studio shooting the pilot, there was this kid who was playing for his mother who had just been through this awful series of events and she was about to lose her house and she had medical issues. And the son was like, he's everything you want in a contestant. He was smart, but also really just agonizing over not wanting to, you know, risk something that might cost his mom an amount of money. I was looking around the audience and everyone was on the edge of their seat. And when there was this emotional moment and he got it right, I mean, there were real tears flowing. And then in the final, you know, segment of the show where we revealed, you know, the surprise to everybody, genuine emotions that came out on the day of the reveal were, were really there. And I thought, oh my God, I said, we've got a really fun game that's interesting with clues that lead to an answer, a really kind of clever, different format. Mm. And then this incredible emotional payoff. I, I thought, I remember sitting there thinking, okay, I know what the next five years of my career are going to be like. This It's this show. And in fact, they were so confident in that, that the pilot had tested one of the highest in, in, in ABC's history. And on the strength of that, at MIPCOM, they sold it to a couple of countries in the Middle East. You know, we thought this was an international hit. We really, really did. And then ABC picked up six episodes that came out around the holidays, which is not the best time to premiere a new show usually. But even so, it just didn't catch on and the ratings weren't there. And the expression in the U.S. is Monday morning quarterbacking, looking back and saying we have done differently. And I think that the two biggest things I would have done differently if, if there were a chance to bring the show back is number one, 
the show began with this very long and a bit overwrought human interest package about who the mm. recipient was. And it was like, first of all, it was such a downer to see all these different things. And it's like when people tune into a game show, do they really want to see all this and be subjected to this level of, oh my God, what this poor woman. The second thing I would have done differently is we were getting a lot of pressure at that time from ABC to make sure that we didn't give away too much money because they were starting the, the realities of the finances of these million dollar game shows were starting to sink into these networks and where we used to be able to average $150,000 in payouts. I think we were being told that we had to come in under a hundred thousand. So the tendency is you want to err on the side of making these puzzles harder to make sure we don't overshoot it because the fastest way to ensure you're not going to get picked up for another season is to give away a million dollars on your first show, right? So what we did was right out of the gate, the very first answer required something like six or seven clues to be able to get to it. And so it's you're introducing this new format, which is clues leading to an answer that is not a very familiar format to most primetime viewers. And you're not allowing the home viewer to really have any sort of a foothold and feel like they're smart until at least halfway through the clues. Um, mm -hmm. And by the time you're there, you're giving away so little money that it also feels like an anticlimax of, oh, I could have made 25,000, but instead I'm banking seven. If we had it to do over again, I would have maybe played with the dollar amounts and maybe you start with a $10,000 grand prize, but it's guessable within two or three clues. So mm -hmm. then the home viewer says, great, I can play this. I understand this game. You know, I'm seeing them bank a lot of money. This sounds great. I'll stay tuned for the higher values. And then as it gets higher, it's appropriate for it to, you know, get more difficult. So I think those, you know, the difficulty level of the, of the clues early on, and then the long personal packages, I think were the two biggest drawbacks in hindsight. We're out of time, but we haven't got around to speaking to loads of other shows that I, I love that you worked on, like Million Dollar Mind Game, Idiot Test, and Solitary, and One Versus A Hundred. So I hope you're going to come back on the show sometime to, to go through all of those. But for now, thanks for, for all of the, the uh, fantastic insight in uh, those shows that we have managed to cover today. And uh, so thanks for your time, Aaron Solomon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Right, and now we're going to do a section that I'm going to call While You Were Away, because Justin, there was so much interesting stuff in the news while you were in Canada that uh, okay. there's a couple of stories that I would uh, put your way. One came up in the Daily Mirror. I've told you to stop reading the Daily Mirror. <laughs> well, I find if you, if you read the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror, somewhere halfway between those two things, there is the truth. So, okay. Um, this story has the headline, I Win a Game Show. Being on it made me feel ill, and I'll never go on TV again. Oh. Story goes, uh, this is a, basically based on a Reddit post on the internet. And the, the Redditor said, I was on a Channel 4 history quiz called Codex and won £1,000. <laughs> now, for listeners, Justin devised Codex, and I helped work, work on it with him. The message continues, it was a really strange experience. They asked us at the end what we were going to spend our money on. I just finished uni, so I said I was going to pay my overdraft off. They then stopped filming and told me to come up with something more exciting. It ends, I was exhausted and felt quite ill by the end. They just kept putting more and more makeup on us to cover up the bags under the eyes. All in all, it really put me off going on TV again. <laughs> Not that I think it would, I would be picked for anything again. 
to this contestant, like if if you think how tired you were of turning up for the end bit, <laughs> imagine how tired all the crew were because they were in for several hours wiring up the entire place beforehand and de- decommissioning everything on, on the back backside of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah, we had to get in at we couldn't get in until all the visitors had gone home. We then had to build the entire set and all the cabling. I remember there was eight kilometers of cable. <laughs> okay. It's a very big place. Um, in order to start filming about 9 p.m., we then filmed through the night. We had to finish before the sun came up because we were in the grand court with a glass roof in the summer. So we were in a real rush to do that. And then we had to be completely out and completely cleared the set by eight o'clock when the cleaners came in. And then at nine o'clock, the public came in. And we had to do that every night um, for the entire run. So that was uh, absolutely exhausting. But I do remember, I mean, there were there were moments at sort of three o'clock in the morning when we were all delirious. Um, so I do have some sympathy for the contestants on that one. We won most of the time. I think there's one time when, when the sun beat us and we had to ask people to come back. Yes. But there was another time when it was very, very close because the, the sort of head of security was saying, well, look, I need to let the, the cleaners in. I'm going to give you a countdown oh. of like when I'm going to pull the plug out. So I was hearing in, in my left ear when he was going to literally flick the switch and turn off all our electricity. And in my right ear, I could hear the vision mixer going, and to the end of this uh, this program, we have 10 seconds, five, <laughs> four, three. So it was like, we we beat that one by about three seconds, I think. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so. I do remember, I remember the director, the floor manager, and various other people all being stuck in the lift as well because they'd all they'd all got in the lift way over the weight of the lift so the lift immediately closed down and it was still about two o'clock in the morning and therefore there was nobody to ring um <laughs> to try to get on with the show and uh, all the key people were stuck in the lift it was it was very difficult i mean the british museum were absolutely brilliant and they opened their hearts to us um, and gave us huge amount of help and huge amounts of goodwill as well but it was a tough environment in which to film a game show especially when if any of the artifacts got damaged or whatever the director of the museum said that he had to go to was it the parliament and explain what had gone wrong yes absolutely yeah i mean there were moments when the uh, the crane was swooping over an assyrian statue i mean didn't it was fine but there were, i remember watching this crane thinking oh god oh god oh god oh god oh god do you think that's how the Sphinx lost its nose? It's like a previously a TV camera crew had just gone a little bit too close. <laughs> but as far as the contestants go, and one of our other contestants was Liv Burry, who went on to become a professional poker player. Mm. So I would say actually, you know, staying up at night and, and doing these late shifts probably stood her in good stead for be- becoming yeah. a poker player. Yeah, for keeping her concentration in the wee small hours of the morning. Mm. So there you are. So it's your next subject, an ambush as well. <laughs> no good the other thing that's uh, hit the news while you've been away is a clip of the itv quiz tenable um so i'm now going to play it to you so have a listen to this so are you ready to play tenable i am great here's your question again the 10 frozen vegetables after broccoli sold at iceland we'll just clarify this for you we're looking for the 10 vegetables that come after broccoli alphabetically which are sold separately at Iceland as part of their own brand range. This list is based on the following search on the Iceland.co.uk website. First under frozen, 
then under vegetables and rice. Finally, then under vegetables. We're not including vegetables sold on any other pages of the website. There are no potato products on our list. This is according to the Iceland.co.uk website as of the 10th February 2022. So good luck with this. You ready to kick off? Yep, let's go. What's your first answer? Um, my first answer I'm going to go for is carrots. Fantastic. That's very funny. So this went viral. Somebody I know called Nick Walker, who's a professional TV insider, he calls himself, was watching Tendable one day and, and, and took a clip of it. And so I think it's an interesting clip because it, well, first of all, like why on earth did they include that as part of the clip? Because normally you would necessarily need to record that as part of the show so the contestants know what the list is about. But mm. you'd normally cut that sort of description out of the final edit. So I, were they short of time? Did they think people would complain if they went to the Iceland website and found that they had a different list? I don't know. Um, but it also explains something about the perils of list quizzes. Right. Because, I mean, first of all, lists, there's not very many of them. Some subjects have not very many good lists. So, like, for example, science, you're pretty much limited to, say, chemical elements oh. and perhaps some well-known scientists and acids or whatever, but that's about it. Every single answer of a list has to be checked. So if you have, like, a list of 206 countries, you have to literally go through every single one and check oh. that they haven't got alternative answers, that they're right or wrong or whatever. They're quite hard to make equally difficult. So if one contestant has one list, how do you make this be equally difficult for somebody else? They go out of date quickly. And they're also quite hard to pin down. Mm. Like the answers for this one is like, what is, you know, what is a vegetable? Well, there's no potato product on the list, but they have included green beans, which are actually legumes. Bell peppers were actually fruit. And mushrooms aren't even a plant. They're a completely different kingdom. Mm. Mm. So basically, if you're devising a new show, please try and avoid lists because they're so, so difficult. Absolutely right. Why were potatoes not included? Well, I think there must have been a different category for those. And so rather than people being suckered in, they tried to sort of steer the contestants away from going down that list and getting surprised. So that was good that they they tried, <laughs> tried to uh, help the contestants that way. Uh, it was a, it's a bit of a weird one. And also it was such a boring question. I mean, you know... All of that aside, if you just if none of the rest of that was true, it still was one of the most boring questions I've ever heard on a quiz. Yeah, but they're six or seven series in, and it's quite a successful <laughs> show. So the like, you know, there's only so, there's only so much of any of these lists. Yeah, but I think it, you know, I think it's a, it's a good point with with any quiz show or any game show for that matter. Something that I always think about when at the development stage is, you know, what are the resources for this? It's very easy to box yourself into a corner where you've devised a show and you've really only got one season's worth of stuff. And I, I've quite often sat with developers and unpacked the premise of the game to say, well, can we can we break this down so that we can have like effectively 10 times as much material in the future? Because I know you're only concentrated on series one, but people aren't going to commission series one if they can't see a series two. Well, as it happens, just last week, I released the new version of my guide to writing better quiz questions. <laughs> it's completely free. So if you want to download it, the link is in the show notes. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. Read. And finally, Aaron Solomon brings a mathematical object to show and tell us.
And we're still here with Aaron Solomon. So what object have you brought to show us today? I decided to bring a calculator, not just because I'm a former math major, which I was, but because math is actually very important, crucial even to the development of game shows when it comes to the scoring system and prizing. So I brought a calculator, which actually relates to the TV show, Show Me the Money, that I was referring to previously. So the original format of Show Me the Money, the concept was that there would be two rounds of gameplay. The first round, if you got an answer correct, you would add whatever money the dancer had in their scroll. If you got it wrong, you would subtract it. Then when you got to round two, if you got an answer correct, you would multiply it by whatever factor the dancer had or divide it by the factor. And this actually leads to a very funny story that we had in development where one of the executives said, you know what would be fun is to make one of the factors that we multiply or divide by a zero. (laughs) I was sitting in the room with actually another great game show statistician, good friend of mine, David Hammett. And we said, well, the problem with that, they said, there's two problems, actually. One of them is bad and the other one is catastrophically bad. The bad version is what does it look like to the viewer if, you know, somebody's sitting on $100,000 and they answer this really hard question correct and congratulations, let's find out what that's going to do to your bank. Zero. (laughs) You lose all your money for having gotten something correct. It seems ill-fitting. But the worst problem is what if you get it wrong? You would divide by zero. And so this executive said, well, that just means it would turn to zero, right? And our mathematician had to explain that, no, when you divide by zero, the answer is infinity. So what would happen is, I'm sorry, you got the answer wrong, but the good news is you have an infinite amount of money now. (laughs) (laughs) And so we explained that they would have a legitimate lawsuit if they ever tried to complain and the settlement would be prohibitive. So (laughs) for so many reasons, the multiplying and dividing rounds ended up going away and the show ultimately just became about adding and subtracting. And finally, it's fake or format time. One of these formats that Justin's about to describe is real and one is fake. And it's my job to decide which is which. All right, so off you go. Okay, I've got two food-related formats for you today. Mm -hmm. The first one is called The Cake Hole. (laughs) Like it already. Okay. It's Bake Off meets The Hunger Games, I suppose you could call it. You've got 10 overweight strangers, and they have to live on a strict diet in a house, while next door there are five bakers who are creating amazing cakes to tempt them with. (laughs) (laughs) and each cake is left in a connecting hatch known as the cake hole right that's the cake hole okay this one is another food competition show and it's called it's complicated right it's complicated and basically you've got a bunch of judges who have a mixture of just about every food allergy requirement, dietary restriction, and taste preferences that you can think of. Mm. And they, the chefs are attempting to make the tastiest dish that meets all their requirements. So that's called It's Complicated or The Cake Hole. Okay. Over to you. Well, they both have something in terms of issues, in terms of reflecting a modern part of mm-hmm. 
everyday life, whether it's obesity or allergies and things. Mm. I'm going to keep this fairly short, I think. And I, I think, let me put it this way. I'm going to say that the cake hole is real. And if it's not real, then Netflix will be buzzing your doorbell within the hour of hearing this. Because I'm certain that there's going to be a show, if not like that, like made like that very, very soon. So I'm going to say the cake hole is definitely the real format. Okay, well, unfortunately, Netflix are ringing the doorbell um, <laughs> because it is not real yet, sadly. Do you know, I actually wrote this one a t- some time ago. And then when I went back to my notes, I wasn't sure if it was real or not because I'd just <laughs> written it on a list called Fake or Format and I couldn't remember. I had to search for it to see whether it was true or not. Um, so that's kind of worrying. It's Complicated, which is true, it has to be one of the worst titles I have ever heard. You can't even say it, um, but it is launching on the Food Network on August the 11th. So that's It's Complicated. I'm all about meeting the judges' requirements. So well done to Justin. It'll be my turn to try and fill him next time. But that is it for this episode of TV Show and Tell. Remember, you can always get in contact with us through our email, which is contact at tvshowandtell.com, or you can tweet us on at TV Show Podcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>